This is Monday Morning QB, November 14th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Today on the show, what are we learning from the midterm elections? This was a direct, utter rejection of MAGA nationwide. Plus, Brazilian politics and lessons for the United States. And a look back at Emmett Till. All that and more. Stay with us. Over the weekend, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a Democrat, was projected to win re-election in Nevada. Her victory gives Democrats 50 Senate seats in the next Congress, with Vice President Kamala Harris holding the tie-breaking vote that's just enough for Democrats to maintain control of the chamber. And while we still don't know the final outcome in the House, this much we do know. The red wave never happened. So now starts the process of understanding why. Sue Goodwin reports. Among the organizations to quickly start the process of drawing lessons from the midterm elections was Indivisible, a self-described grassroots movement of thousands of local Indivisible groups with a mission to elect progressive leaders, rebuild our democracy, and defeat the Trump agenda. Ezra Levin is co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible, and just two weeks ago, he spoke on this program about the organization's Give No Ground campaign going into the midterms, the goal of which was to turn the election into a referendum on GOP extremism. Yeah, Give No Ground is an effort to, to do precisely what it's called, is to give no ground to this rising tide of authoritarianism in this country. And that's by actually doing the work to defend the seats that we have and uh, in some cases actually ensure that we pick up some. And so the, the effort of Give No Ground is to devote our resources, which means phone banking, text banking, canvassing, postcarding, and grassroots donations to top-tier Senate and congressional races that we think we need to win in order to produce a pro-democracy majority in Congress. So it is not the entirety of the campaign. I want to be clear, we're not, we're not in every single race that we would like to win. What we are looking at is what are the races that really could go either way and where is the particular indivisible strength that was Ezra Levin of Indivisible two weeks ago, talking about their goals for the midterm elections. Now that the votes are in and, for the most part, tallied, Indivisible was one of many organizations last week to host a post-election debrief. Typically, these events are a first attempt to ask what can be learned from the election results and consider what that means for future political campaigns. The Indivisible post-election debrief took place last Thursday as a call with Indivisible organizers across the country. Leah Greenberg, also a co-founder and co-executive director of Indivisible, opened the call by reminding attendees what the expectations were going into the midterms. If you told any pundit or political scientist or really anybody who does politics at all, about the fundamentals heading into this election, that we would be facing, an, we'd have an incumbent Democratic president, we'd have control of Congress, we would have an economy where it is and an inflation rate where it is. What they would tell you is you're looking at a midterm bloodbath. 
that is the totally normal historical precedent. It is what happened for President Obama in 2010. He lost 60 seats in the House, control of state governorships and legislatures nationwide. Um, and it was what anybody would have predicted looking at what the hand we were dealt heading into this election. And the stakes have never been higher because this time around, we are not only uh, talking about who controls Congress, as crucial as that is, but we are talking about the future of our democracy. We are facing a wave of people who are running for governorships, for state legislatures, for secretary of states races, who are running on an explicit platform of attacking and sabotaging our democracy so that they can deliver our elections to MAGA forces. That was what was on the ballot. That was the stakes in this election. And so we were, uh, let's, let's be honest, all of us were hoping for the best, but also very much bracing for the worst headed into Tuesday. And you know what? It's going to take a little time until we have all of the results. We're still waiting on the House. We're still waiting on some key governorships. But what we know, what we can tell you right now is that that much, uh, much heralded red wave did not happen, did not sweep the nation. So the fact that we are still waiting to know who controls the House is itself an enormous victory. So how did that happen? How did Democrats defy the odds? That will be the subject of many a focus group and campaign strategy session as 2024 bears down on us. In the meantime, Ezra Levin came next on Indivisible's debrief call to describe his initial takeaways from last Tuesday's vote. And there's three. Takeaway number one. This was a profound rejection of MAGA extremism. This was a direct, utter rejection of MAGA nationwide. If you happen to listen to the New York Times Daily podcast this morning, you would have heard their smart political prognosticators and analysts saying many expected a big red wave, but instead Democrats won big for a specific reason, because the voters were concerned about abortion and democracy and MAGA extremism. That's why we won big. And you might have heard it on that podcast this morning, or maybe you heard it when you read any of the emails that we've sent over basically the entirety of the last year. When we put together Indivisible's electoral strategy this year, we were talking to Indivisible's all over the country, partners all over the country. And what we came up with was a specific strategic direction stretching back to the spring when we launched this. And it was a simple idea that in order to have a chance in these midterms, Democrats had to adopt a simple messaging strategy, focus on MAGA extremism, on abortion, on democracy, on book burning, on the threat of these MAGA extremists to our way of life and our democracy. That was the chance that we had. If we define what the election was about, we argue, then we've got a shot. But as strongly as Indivisible felt about turning the midterms into a referendum, on GOP extremism. As Ezra Levin explains, it took some time for the Democratic Party to make that a central message of its campaign. As recently as this summer, I talked to high-level Dems who were telling us, this is true, they were telling us that abortion 
It's a political loser. And we should avoid that on the campaign trail. But that's not where the conversation ended. We won that strategic argument. The Democratic Party got on board with this. They unified around pursuing a campaign against MAGA extremism. Joe Biden, President Biden, his final two speeches were about abortion rights, democracy, and MAGA extremism. We were unified headed into these elections. And let me tell you, President Biden was pilloried by the press for it. Armchair political commentators and other, other folks who were on the sidelines, they were saying, what are you doing? You're out of touch with the public. Nobody cares about fascism. Look at the price of gas. That's the real issue. Focus on that. But those folks were wrong. Those folks were wrong. This movement and the broader pro-democracy movement, we were right to pursue this line of argument against the MAGAs. And now the MAGAs lost so spectacularly that it's thrown the GOP into recriminations and to chaos. It was unthinkable a week ago, but right now we have public officials, Republican electeds, who are calling for Trump to be pushed out. And for Democrats, the message is clear. The fight against MAGA extremism doesn't end with 2022. Now, look, this is a practical lesson because it's not just about this year, but it's a lesson for what we take into next year, in 23, in 24. And the lesson is simple. The American Republic that we all live in today, in this republic, there is a political price to pay for MAGA extremism. And if we take the fight to MAGAs, that drives our people out to vote, and it brings along voters who might not otherwise be with us. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the election results. That's lesson one. And boy, that's a good lesson to have going into next year. Which brings us to takeaway number two. For Ezra Levin, it is this. You have to give voters what they want. And while it may have taken considerable time for Democrats to be able to do that, as Ezra Levin describes it, the party finally delivered. As soon as Biden got elected, there was a major debate within the party and within pro-democracy circles and pro-democratic party circles that what should the agenda be? Should Biden and the Dems move forward boldly? Should they pass big laws? Should they implement major executive actions? Or should they trim their sales? Should they try to reach out to Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy? Should they water everything down or slow everything or do nothing and just hope for the best? As of earlier this year, I will tell you, it looked like we were losing big parts of this fight. These, this was at the depths of our prospects for these midterms. And the democracy bill had just been killed by Mitch McConnell and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. The economic bill was being strangled and possibly was not going to make it through. Biden had yet to move forward on a lot of major administrative actions. And there was this palpable feeling. I think many of us felt this, that Dems had lost their mojo and they were just staggering into the midterms. That's not the Democratic, Democratic Party that we were rallying around for election. Over the last three months, look, Dem, Dems got their mojo back. We rallied around the largest climate bill in American history. We encouraged and celebrated Biden's executive actions on student debt relief, and we cheered him on his executive action to decriminalize marijuana. The result was headed into all the voter contact that we needed to do. We had the wind at our backs. We could brag about what the Dems had done. We had answers for young voters when they said, why is it important for Dems to hold power? And the results of the midterm speak for themselves. Base turnout produced the margins we needed in swing races across the country, and Dems ran against MAGA extremism 
while also running on what they actually did, what they delivered, that work. And this is the important lesson for next year, because I don't know what the makeup of Congress yet is going to be. We don't have the final numbers, but we do know there are going to be debates about how to engage in legislative strategy. And what the last few years have showed us is that when Dems fight and when Dems deliver, the voters reward them. That is a very important lesson going into next year when we're talking about what to do with the debt ceiling, what to do with the budgets, what to do when Kevin McCarthy makes unrealistic demands for what legislation should go through Congress. We have an answer because we've run this strategy and we've seen the results. And now for the third takeaway from Ezra Levin. And this goes to the heart of Indivisible's strategy, which is grassroots organizing. And, as Ezra Levin sees it, it's exactly this kind of grassroots organizing that contributed to such a poor performance by the GOP in last week's elections and delivered results for progressive Democrats. And it is what will continue to deliver moving forward. Now, a good voter contact program can move roughly up 1% of the vote. That might not sound like much, but you look at the results. You look at the results. Dozens upon dozens of these races were decided by 1%. Everybody on this call right now should feel ownership of that win. Whether you personally were in the district or state, whether you made calls from afar, or whether you participated in building up the power of this movement nationwide, that's what won it. That's what won it. And importantly, it's not just what won it for this election, but this is a guide for going forward into 2023 and 2024, to organize to defeat Trump or DeSantis or whatever new form of MAGA extremism rears its ugly head. There is absolutely no replacement for an active, engaged, nationwide pro-democracy grassroots movement. And the good news is that's what we're building. That was Ezra Levin, co-director and co-founder of Indivisible. To learn more about their work, fighting against MAGA extremism, and fighting for progressive policies, and to see what they are already working on for 2024, visit indivisible.org. That's indivisible.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Before we move on in the program from the midterm elections, we want to take note of just some of the historic firsts. Maura Healey is the first woman to be elected Massachusetts governor and the first openly gay woman to hold that office in the United States. Wes Moore was elected as the first black governor of Maryland Summer Lee will become the first black woman to represent Pennsylvania in Congress, and Delia Ramirez won election to the House in Illinois' newly redrawn 3rd Congressional District, making her the first Latina elected to Congress from Illinois. Delia Ramirez is a progressive Democrat who's the daughter of Guatemalan immigrants and the wife of a DACA recipient. She previously served in the Illinois State House after being elected in 2018, and for years she has been a community organizer. 
Last week, she spoke with Amy Goodman on a Democracy Now! broadcast about what she hoped to achieve in her new job. Here's an excerpt of that interview. Look, when I announced on December 8th a year ago that we were running for Congress, I was really deliberate about making it we. That while my name was on the ballot in November and in June, I was taking the voices, the souls, the minds of the people that asked me to run. Uh, these are people who are struggling and paying for their child care. Uh, these are people that I helped house 10 years ago when I used to run a homeless shelter. These are the same people that I have been working with and building with so that we have progressives representing them in city council, in the state house, in the state senate. And these are people who have been fighting every single day to create affordable housing so that people can have, families can have stable housing security. So when I say we, uh, I wanted them to know that they may not be on the ballot, but they were going with me. They are going with me to Washington, D.C. And that was really important. Uh, it meant that 800 volunteers worked very hard endlessly, Amy, to make sure that I made it through a very, very challenging primary, a primary where my opponents, particularly one of them, did everything in his power to try to destroy my character, from commercials to mailers to radio to digital ads. And unfortunate for him, it backfired. Uh, because the people on the doors knew that my track record was one of expanding health care coverage, of helping create democracy through an elected school board in Chicago. And I was someone uh, that had secured more than $1.5 billion in emergency housing relief to keep people in their homes during the pandemic. It was clear. People knew I had a track record. They knew I represented thousands of people in my journey in public service and that I was going, I am going to Congress to build on that work that we've done in Illinois. And so you asked me, what are the things I want to work on? You know, I kept saying, for me, this race is personal. I'm the daughter of immigrants. I have parents who can't afford their Medicare supplemental. My mother is on Medicaid, working minimum wage job as a home care worker. And as she cares for this 93-year-old senior, she worries about her diabetes medication and the fact that the agency that she works for pays so little that she can't afford the $550 a month health care insurance they offer because those co-pays and the cost of her insulin is almost a third of her entire income. This is a reality for me. I'm also the wife of a DACA recipient, someone that's been here since the age of 14. I'm entering Congress as the only member of Congress in a mixed-status family. So health care, Medicare for all, expanding health care access and quality is absolutely important to me. Finally delivering after 30 years of a conversation on immigration reform is not something I'm going to just co-sponsor, talk about, hashtag. I understand the urgency of the people that are sending me and the responsibility to be a leader on the issue. In short term, my hope and what I call uh, my future colleagues to do during lame duck is to finally pass the DREAM Act and give DACA recipients that pathway to citizenship that they deserve, that my husband deserves, that every single one of the young people who are not that young anymore, who look like me, who are my age, have been waiting for as they've contributed and called this place home for so long. And then I'd say to you, lastly, is the economy. 
what I heard people continue to say and what resonated was, yes, we've made some progress. Yes, we helped you keep your housing during the pandemic. Yes, we're helping you, you know, through some child tax credits, through some support services. But the reality is it's still not enough. You are still struggling with two jobs and barely making it. We have a responsibility to hold corporations accountable and all of those that have profited and created this inflation at the backs of everyday working people. So immigration, health care, economy are front and center for me. That was Congress member-elect Delia Ramirez, the first Latina to be elected to Congress from the state of Illinois, speaking last week with Democracy Now! A little over a week before U.S. midterms, another election was held, with possibly even greater consequences for the planet. That election, for the presidency of Brazil, pitted far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro against leftist former two-term president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or simply Lula. The choice couldn't have been starker. Lula's first tenure as president, from 2002 to 2010, saw an expansion of welfare programs and demand-driven economic growth, plus greater Latin American political integration, and, with global consequences, a significant reduction in deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. The coup-like removal of a Lula protege from the presidency in 2016 and the election of Bolsonaro in 2018 ushered in a reversal of Lula's legacy. Social programs were slashed, and a constitutional amendment was passed strictly capping social spending. Regional integration was forgotten, and deforestation renewed. Two rounds of voting this October pushed Lula back into power, but by an uncomfortably thin margin given the stakes. He now faces tough political and economic headwinds to reconstitute Brazil's welfare projects, realign Brazil's foreign policy, and protect the Amazon. To learn more about Lula and Brazilian politics, Monday Morning QB was joined by Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Main is an expert in the region and was present in the Brazilian metropolis of Sao Paulo to observe the October election. He says the Brazilian political situation is similar to that of the United States, with a rise in far-right politics threatening domestic progress and global stability. Bolsonaro, who was just defeated in the election, was often referred to as the Trump of the tropics, which, you know, it's a bit of a caricature, but uh, he uh, certainly did uh, admire Trump and imitated him in a number of ways. His just provocative manner, his his hate mongering, frankly, uh, his sort of dog whistling in favor of sort of a white supremacist vision of Brazil. Uh, so some clear parallels in their styles and and also in the fact that he uh, had threatened to not recognize the results of these elections. In fact, it's not clear that he has recognized the results of the elections uh, so far, but he's been mostly quiet. 
but but he certainly was threatening um, not to recognize the results uh, and to mobilize his supporters uh, if he didn't win, and uh, even you know possibly to try to mobilize the military. He's often made calls to the military. He's a big admirer of the military and also of Brazil's military dictatorship. You know, which was in place from the mid '60s until the mid 1980s. So, yeah, a number of parallels there. I think, you know, also, also some real differences that uh, made the stakes in these elections in Brazil even higher. I think, which is that uh, there was a real rupture of democracy that occurred before Bolsonaro's election in Brazil. He was elected in 2018. Um, in 2016, the left-leaning president Dilma Rousseff was impeached by Brazil's Congress in, in a process that many considered to be very unconstitutional. Um, in under the Brazil's constitution, you know, you have to essentially be uh, guilty of a crime of some kind to be removed from office, and there was really uh, no crime. <laughs> that took place in the case of Dilma Rousseff, and she was removed by an extremely corrupt Congress. In fact, the vast majority of those who voted for her to be impeached uh, were facing various criminal charges, including corruption charges. So uh, she was removed and she was replaced uh, by uh, an all-white and all-male uh, government run by Michelle Temer, who had been the vice president until uh, the summer of 2016, uh, and who came from a right-wing party. And he took the country in a very, very different direction, one that uh, Brazilians had never approved in an election. Uh, he carried out, you know, a lot of very right-wing economic reforms, uh, slashing uh, labor rights, cutting, you know, the budget of social programs. And then also in terms of Brazil's foreign policy, took the country in a very different direction. Brazil had been a big advocate of sort of non-aligned international politics, uh, supporting the BRICS uh, block of countries and also su heavily supporting um, Latin American integration, uh, an integration process that would be very independent of the U.S. and, and other big powers in the world. Um, had made a lot of advances in that area. And when this right-wing uh, sort of cabal took over the government of Brazil in 2016 undemocratically, uh, they really halted that uh, agenda and aligned themselves very closely with the U.S. and uh, turned, turned their backs on, on much of the rest of Latin America. So... The election, uh, now the re-election of Lula da Silva, this is his third term for a lot of people in Brazil, uh, really takes Brazil back, puts Brazil back on a more democratic track. I want to turn to what we can expect from Lula in terms of social policy. And I know there's a lot of talk about the Amazon and we'll get to that, but I wanted to ask a comparison to his previous stint as president when he was really a champion of social welfare. For example, the, the Bolsa Familia program, which, uh, you know, massive cash transfers contingent on children's school attendance. So it was kind of an effort to reduce poverty in the short term and in the long term. It's, it's my sense that Lula's political coalition in this election 
tacked a little more to the center or broadened in a way to encompass more of the political center. And so I'm curious, will Lula have a similar mandate to pursue broad social welfare, given that his coalition has sort of broadened to encompass the political center? So Lula in this campaign uh, really ran on his past record, and he'd been an immensely popular president. I think when he finished his second term in office, he had, uh, I think, something like 87% support, you know, among Brazilian voters. And that was largely because of the very popular and successful social programs, um, like the one you mentioned, Bolsa Familia, that you know, helped bring many, many families, millions, tens of millions, an estimated 30 million out of poverty in Brazil during that period. So he he ran on that agenda in this election. And essentially, his campaign called for sort of rebooting the social agenda that had been, you know, cut after the removal of Dilma Rousseff, when she was removed through this unconstitutional impeachment process in 2016. Um, a lot of those social programs were cut and reversed. And in fact, an amendment was put into place and the Constitution was forced through Congress that uh, put a spending cap on uh, social programs, a very strict spending cap. Uh, so Lula in this campaign is, you know, committed to continuing, ironically, with a policy of Bolsonaro's that was uh, begun under the pandemic, which, you know, is modeled actually on Lula's Bolsa Familia program from the 2000s called Auxilio Brazil or aid assistance to Brazil. And that provided each family with 600 reales, which is about $150 uh, a month, uh, which in Brazil goes a very long way, which is very helpful. And that was set to be ended, and and Lula has called for it to be continued and and expanded as well with an additional 150 reales uh, per child. So along with this, he's also um, really focused on the problem of hunger in Brazil that has gone up a lot uh, during the Bolsonaro years. Um, millions of Brazilians are food insecure, so he wants to put into place a big food assistance program. Um, university scholarships for low-income students in Brazil uh, were were cut drastically uh, during the Bolsonaro period and during the previous um, interim right-wing government of uh, Michel Temer. And so he's going to bring that back. Uh, big housing program as well is on the agenda. So all of this is, you know, going to run into some issues, um, as you mentioned, you know, in order to win this election and, and also in order to sort of try to build a coalition, a workable coalition in Congress, uh, Lula is tacked a bit uh, towards the center. His vice presidential candidate, um, Gerald Alkman, is considered sort of a center-right political figure. However, Alkman and, you know, everyone else that supported this campaign has supported this um, social agenda, I think. Uh, there's broad consensus within the coalition supporting Lula in this campaign. But there are, there are, um, you know, some big obstacles. One of them is this spending cap that has been imposed, uh, through this constitutional amendment. So one of the first priorities for Lula is to 
reform that amendment or remove that amendment. And that's going to require a two thirds majority in the Brazilian Congress in, in order to do that. And that's not going to be easy to get because the, the Congress has a majority of right wing and center right wing deputies. And it's not clear at all that they're willing to play ball to, to make this happen. I want to turn now to the Amazon, which obviously was a, a big topic prior to Lula's election. Uh, deforestation was the big concern during Bolsonaro's presidency, both environmentally and for the indigenous people in the rainforest. How much damage was done to the Amazon and to its peoples under Bolsonaro? And what does Lula need to do to sustain its future? So Bolsonaro, you know, part of his base of political support comes from the beef industry, the, the ranchers in Brazil and agribusiness and mining interests as well. Uh, these all helped finance Bolsonaro's campaign. And, you know, they have a debt to him because uh, what he did during his presidency was that he relaxed. Um, I think actually we can say, you know, just in, completely stopped enforcing the regulations in place to protect the Amazon uh, from deforestation. Um, you know, he made significant cuts to those institutions involved in enforcement of the regulations and, you know, basically made it very clear that those institutions should back off. And uh, Lula's made very, very clear that he intends to clamp down and more uh, than you know, during his first two terms in office, uh, this this is a big, big priority, as well as, you know, protecting in, indigenous rights, particularly territorial uh, rights, which um, had also uh, really been flouted under Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro had really allowed uh, enormous incursion into indigenous territories. So um, needless to say, uh, Lula has a lot of support from indigenous communities uh, in the Amazon. And, you know, there are a number of indigenous leaders that are in Brazil's Congress also that are going to be, um, I'm sure, very outspoken in uh, defending the rights of those uh, indigenous peoples in Brazil's Congress in the years to come. We had talked earlier about Bolsonaro's unwillingness to concede the election, at least publicly, you know, I think he's had some lieutenants kind of come out and, and say, yeah, he's he's willing to give up power, but he doesn't want to say it publicly himself. Um, assuming that Bolsonaro's avenues for a coup have largely disappeared, what's next for the Brazilian far right and for Bolsonaro himself? So, yes, so um, Bolsonaro... Um, his hands were tied actually fairly quickly after the results of the elections came out because his biggest allies in Brazil actually were very quick to recognize the results. I think, you know, basically, uh, they didn't want those elections questioned because, you know, it would have potentially jeopardized their own positions. They had, they had won the election. And uh, they didn't see any point in undermining uh, their own legitimacy, I think. So, you know, that made it difficult for Bolsonaro. And and then you also had international leaders from everywhere. And it was a really coordinated effort. Very soon after the results were announced, you had 
Biden, you had uh, President Macron in France, uh, and and many others that very very quickly recognized the results, and you know stated that these elections were free and fair and should be you know recognized as such. And so Bolsonaro found himself very isolated both domestically and internationally. So interestingly, without any sort of signal from Bolsonaro, you have many of his supporters that did uh, take to the streets. And uh, one of their big actions was to block traffic along a lot of major highways and arteries and cities and so on. There were, uh, I think, well over 200 sort of um, roadblocks implemented in various parts of the country. But they were actually opposed in many cases by Bolsonaro's allies and particularly governors um, that had been elected that were getting complaints from business sectors of those uh, states and so on. And and the pushback was so strong that Bolsonaro actually had to come back out again and, and specifically call on his supporters to stop blocking roads. And so then they shifted to holding sort of big demonstrations in front of military bases and calling for the military uh, to intervene, to carry out a coup, essentially. Uh, but that obviously didn't have much effect and has sort of largely fizzled out. But, you know, these supporters are still there. And the question is, will Bolsonaro try to mobilize them uh, one way or another um, in the coming months? Will he make some sort of January 6th kind of insurrection attempt uh it's it's not clear but um certainly he's very very weak and there's no sign from him that you know he wants to engage in sort of prolonged resistance to the results uh, in the way that trump did but uh there are a lot of far-right supporters that are there and if bolsonaro uh, doesn't uh, you know try to use them in some way uh to influence politics in the country. Others are likely to do that. You have other far-right figures, uh, such as um, the new governor of Sao Paulo, uh, who's already been being talked about as a, you know, the possible successor to Bolsonaro on, on the far-right. Uh, so the far-right remains, you know, very much in place and uh, a continued threat to democracy in Brazil, um, frankly. Lastly, Lula's election victory, I think, puts him alongside some other recently elected Latin American presidents who are of a progressive or leftist bent. I'm thinking about Lopez Obrador in Mexico, which is not so recent, but then uh, Gustavo Petro in Colombia uh, this summer. Is this election of leftist or progressive leaders in Latin America simply random or, or happenstance? Or is there a bigger transnational movement to the left instead? So my sense is that in the last few years in Latin America, we've been kind of reverting to what has largely been the new normal, which has been the election of progressive governments. You know, we saw a, a huge wave, actually, that took place in the late 90s, early 2000s, where um Within a few years, the majority of the governments of, of South America and, and in fact, of most of Latin America, um, shifted to the left, 
then there was a shift back to the right that occurred around, um, you know, starting in 2011, 2012, uh, that coincided with the global financial crisis, making it very difficult for incumbents to be reelected in many cases. And then in other cases, um, such as Brazil, you had anti-democratic and, and rather unconstitutional power grabs that took place by right-wing sectors. So in, in Brazil, you had the unconstitutional impeachment of uh, Dilma Rousseff in 2016. You had a real coup before that in, in Honduras in 2009. You had another sort of similar parliamentary kind of coup against uh, the progressive president Lugo in Paraguay. Uh, so there were a few instances like this. The result was you had a lot more uh, right-wing governments, and you had a majority of right-wing governments. But ultimately, it didn't last. These right-wing governments have not been re-elected. And in fact, voters have you know, voted back in people that governed previously and or people from those movements. And, and of course, in some cases, particularly in Colombia, uh, the left has been voted in for the first time um, ever. So, yes, we're, we're seeing a shift back to the left, but that I think is sort of representative of the general trend um, in Latin America that's been in place since the 1990s. And uh, so I, th- I think this is going to be sort of a, a longer term trend, but, but where, you know, you do have strong anti-democratic forces, um, you know, sometimes with some external support, uh, the U.S. has played a negative role in some cases. That was certainly the case in Honduras in 2009, where the U.S. really helped enable a coup to take place against the progressive government there. Uh, but also within the countries. I mean, when you look at Brazil, for instance, uh, the Bolsonaro phenomenon can be explained in part by the resentment of traditional middle and upper classes, uh, largely white, you know, very entitled and feeling that their sort of position of privilege within society is threatened by the sort of social programs uh, that someone like Lula implements. Uh, and so there's there's a backlash and and you see a similar backlash in in other countries and i think that uh, helps explain really a lot of these right wing movements and the far right in particular that's taken hold in a lot of uh latin american countries that i think only in brazil has the far right really succeeded in winning an election but they've come very close for instance in chile where ultimately you had a progressive candidate Gabriel Boric who won but um, a far-right candidate came very close to winning there and and there are other far-right figures that have uh, gained a lot of ground in Latin America so it's a hopeful time in Latin America but it's a time of you know also you know great risks and and threats to uh, democracy similarly to what we're seeing in the U.S. That's Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. You can learn more about Brazil, Lula, and especially the push for Latin American integration by visiting CEPR.net. Maine is also a member of the Board of Directors for the Washington Brazil Office, which can be found at brazilofficeorg For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. The Till Trilogy is a three-part play 
that reflects on the life, death, and legacy of Emmett Till on the stage of the Mosaic Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. The stage curtains opened in early October, and this week is its final week at the Northeast D.C. Theatre. The play is among other tributes to Emmett Till launched this year. In Maryland, a new alert system now informs activists of hate and racial crimes, and President Biden signed into law the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. As the Till Trilogy ends its run in Washington, from our archives, here's a report from Asia Beckham, who spoke with the playwright in early October. In August, a grand jury in Mississippi decided to not indict Carolyn Bryant Doham, a white woman whose accusations nearly 70 years ago fueled the lynching of Emmett Till due to insufficient evidence on charges of kidnapping and manslaughter. However, a playwright in D.C. is remembering the narrative as told by Emmett's close loved ones. The Till Trilogy, a three-part play presented at the Mosaic Theatre Company in Washington, D.C., will reflect on the life, death, and legacy of Emmett Till. The theatrical presentation is one of the recent efforts to remember the racially motivated murder of Emmett Till, which sparked the civil rights movement and created access for Black Americans to experience unprecedented social opportunities and legal protections. With an opening date set for October 4th, the Till Trilogy will open its curtains just months after another effort called the Emma Till Alert System emerged to create awareness about hate crimes and racist incidents in the area. The new system will send an email or text alert to nearly 200 Black leaders across Maryland about any credible hate crimes or racist incidents in the state to increase accountability. Also, in March, President Joe Biden signed the law, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, that made lynching a federal hate crime. The Till Trilogy play seeks to focus on the past, present, and future impacts of Emmett Till's experience by paying homage on stage in D.C. this fall. First, we spoke to the director at the Mosaic Theater. My name is Reg Douglas, and I'm the artistic director at Mosaic Theater in D.C., and I feel so honored and blessed to be able to do this work. I'm so excited to be producing the Till Trilogy by Aoife Baeza and directed by the brilliant Talvin Wilkes. You know, we believe that theater uh, should allow us to look back and reckon with where we've been, but also give us a chance to reflect on where we are right now as a community, as a society. And ideally, because theater is an active sport, it inspires conversation in the audience and makes us think differently about our neighbor and ourselves. And that's exactly what the Till Trilogy does. It is three plays. Uh, you can watch each of them on their own, The Ballad of Emmett Till, Benevolence, or the world premiere that summer in Sumner. All three of these plays on their own and collectively speak that kind of truth to power. They allow us to wrestle and reckon with our history of racial injustice, uh, sparked by the life and death and legacy of Emmett Till, whose murder, of course, uh, sparked the civil rights movement. But that is an ongoing conversation. I believe that that history is yet alive, good and bad. And so we are producing these plays as a reflection of where we've been, but even more so a calling, a call to action, to think about who we are today as a society and what justice could mean and should mean for all of us as we move ahead. So this is the kind of work that really exemplifies Mosaic Theater's mission and to do it with such brilliant artists like Aoife Talvin, this amazing cast in such a dynamic theatrical way, this is a dream come true. Next, we spoke with a playwright my name is Ifa Bayesa. I'm a playwright and uh, also a novelist. Of course, my main opus, one I've been working on for a number of years, 
is the Till Trilogy, which is telling this Central American story of the making of modern America uh, from the vantage point of the African-American struggle. Uh, that's the Till Trilogy. And I'm so delighted that uh, Mosaic Theater is, is going to be able to produce the work in full with all three plays representing this saga this fall. Aoife, why right. decide to put the play on stage now? In particular, in this time, this perilous time that we're in, some of the elements of repression, voter suppression, the peril to young black lives and desire to erase or minimize the struggle of black people historically in America, those elements are a growing aspect of our society right now. And so even as I think of this play as, think of this group of plays as a story that is timeless, the timeless themes of, of a, a boy transition to manhood, of a mother trying to defend the honor of her child, and a people struggling to be free. Those are timeless stories. The Till Trilogy reminds people of not only the past, but uh, a reawakening uh, commitment and passion that we very much need today. Just briefly, like, tell us, like, what can we expect in each part of the trilogy? Certainly, certainly. Well, the production runs from October 4th until November 20th. And it is three distinct plays looking at this saga from different vantage points. Uh, the Ballad of Emmett Till, which is the first play, is the story of the boy, the journey of the boy who goes on a summer quest to Mississippi for life, liberty, and happiness. And uh, his journey changes the course of a nation. But it is the, the story of the, the fullness of life of this boy becoming a man at the center of the saga that bears his name. Then the middle play is entitled That Summer in Sumner, and it will be a world premiere. And it is the story of the trial of his killers. But it's also the story of the reporters who come down to cover the trial. It is a celebration of the black press and when the black press was at its height and who were at the forefront of the investigation to get to truth. It is also the story of the witnesses, of course, Emmett's family, his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, and his uncle who took the stand and also a young man uh, a sharecropper who was one of the witnesses who uh, risked his life to come forward and testify. Then benevolence is about the impact of this experience on the Delta, uh, on the white South, and essentially on America of the 1950s, which was still very much segregated. And it's the, the exploration of two couples, one white, one black, who are struggling to keep their love in an environment that, because it is so polarized, makes it almost impossible for them to do that. And so it's the boy, the trial, and the aftermath in three separate plays. If you see one, then you're going to want to see the next one, and then you're going to want to see the next one. Uh, you can also see them in different order. 
and you can also see them over the course of the run. So there are many different ways to kind of experience the saga. I kind of wonder, were you able to talk with the family about the play? I went on a quest to to find out who he was and uh, to build a character and then build build a series of plays around that idea. So in the course of doing that, I talked to um, his cousins, Wheeler Parker and Simeon Wright. Uh, his, Simeon was younger, but is actually his uncle. Uh, they were with Emmett on that fateful last week of his life. And I spoke with his Sunday schoolmates, uh, Mr. Goodwin, and I spoke with a number of his classmates and playground mates from a grammar school, which is now named after him. I spoke with a number of people in Mississippi from the respective towns of Money and Glendora, where the, the two half-brothers uh, lived. I sent away through the Freedom Information Act to uh, see what might be available uh, in the FBI file. Uh, I was curious to find out what was in, in the files from you know, prior years, from 1955. And uh, I got a call about 8 o'clock in the morning. It turned out this was an officer. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember her name now. Um, Juanita Atkins, who was a younger sister of one of Emmett's classmates. And she knew him from the playground, and she had a crush on him from the playground. And through her, I met seven or eight more classmates. And so it was, you know, quite an adventure kind of discovering who Emmett was through his peers. That's really where I wanted to, you know, start my research. And... um one of the most remarkable interviews I had was with uh, a woman named Heloise Aldrich, uh, who in her youth was Heloise Woods. And uh, she had kept a letter that Emmett wrote her uh, in 1955, just before he left for Mississippi. And it's a remarkable artifact. And I was able to create this wonderful scene of uh, Emmett's uh, first flirtation with a girl. So I got information from the most, the oddest of places, if you will. Um, and uh, everyone was most generous in in sharing what was a really, really difficult story for all of them. And that's our show for today. Support Monday Morning QB by visiting WPFWFM.org and becoming a monthly sustainer. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Askia. Again, please visit WPFWFM.org slash donate and become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Mm-hmm.